We are uh, looking at some of the uh, heroes of our faith, and uh, we come to Genesis 32 with Jacob. And someone has once said that a good scare is worth more to a man than good advice. A good scare is worth more than good advice. At least that's what Hudson likes to believe. Every time I uh, get up from a restaurant, we, my dad took us out to eat at Longhorn just the other day when he was in town, went to the bathroom, came out, and Hudson was there and said, boo. <laughs> he timed it, you know, just to know. And uh, man, a good scare is often worth more than good advice. In our text this morning in Genesis 32, that's page 27 uh, in your uh, pew Bible, Jacob is in one of those moments when you are on your knees and you are begging for mercy and you are praying, God, if you get me out of this, I'll never do it again. Maybe you have never prayed one of those prayers. I'll tell you like an older saint once told me, keep living. Life has a way of backing you into a corner, and you begin to realize that if God does not come through, that you are not going to make it, and you cry out, oh God, help me. That's why we say there are no atheists in foxholes, right? Some of you may be here right now. When you came in this morning... What nagging worries did you bring with you? Any fears looking within? Perhaps just below the surface that you maybe are not publicizing. Perhaps it's a serious marital or family problem. Perhaps it's a financial problem or a a desperate need for work. It, It may be a personal problem. Loneliness, guilt, Anger, bitterness, or anxiety. Maybe it's some life-dominating sin. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, gambling. Whatever the problem, you know that you need God, and you are here crying out for help. Well, the good news is this. God uses our troubles to transform us. One pastor put it better than I could ever think of. He said this, God takes our adversity and he turns it into a university. God takes our adversity and turns it into a university. You know, God is constantly moving us out of our comfort zones. That is what life is. He will push you. He will challenge you. Friends, God will even expose you so that He will prove Himself to you that He is all-sufficient. That seems to be the gateway to our passage here in Genesis 32. We meet Jacob taking a nap between two burnt bridges. Jacob has been on the run Some could even argue that Jacob has been on the run since he came out of the womb, right? Out of the womb, he has been holding on to his brother Esau's heel in Genesis 25, 26. He lived his life on the run, tricking his brother Esau for his birthright for a bowl of bean soup. Now, I could understand if it was New England clam chowder, but bean soup for a birthright? Come on. Then he went on 
to trick his father into giving him the covenant blessing that Isaac wanted to give Esau. And it wasn't until this week that I was reading through Genesis, seeing that God promised from the beginning that it was going to be Jacob that was going to be blessed, that the older would serve the younger. And I really see some stubbornness that we see in Jacob and his father Isaac, because Isaac determined that he was going to bless his son Esau, even though God said it was going to be through Jacob. Interesting. He went on and tricked his father anyways. As he tricks his father, pretending to be Esau, him and his mom are in a conspiracy for him to leave town because some of the last recorded words we have from Esau are, I'm going to kill you. And so he has to run for his life to a very, very far away land, away from the land that God had promised him, the promised land that he was going to inherit. And so he runs far away out of the promised land. We have to remember that. And he runs to Uncle Laban's house. And there, Jacob meets the love of his life, Rachel. And on a cool, dark evening, he ended up with her sister, Leah. How is that possible? A, they either wore a lot of veils. B, it was very dark outside. C, there was a lot of alcohol involved. Or D, all of the above. I've had questions about how that is possible. And frankly, I'm satisfied with D, all of the above. That one seems to fit for me either way. The trickster was tricked by Laban. Laban was a match for him, and he had worked for seven years for Rachel, and then he has to work another seven years. So men, grab your wife's hands right now because all of our hearts are growing warm as he looks over and he says, but honey, it was just a day. It seemed just a day. Ladies, go ahead and pinch your husband and say, did you not know she was my sister? <laughs> pinch your husband and say, have you ever seen us get along before? Was this really a good idea? Clearly, Leah was not the only one with eyesight problems. <laughs> Jacob, his eyes were filled with lust and married sisters. Sisters. Yet, during his exile, the Lord blessed Jacob with his family and his prosperity. But in chapter 31, his relationship with his in-laws began to turn south. It is there in Genesis 31, verse 3, that God begins his plan to bring Jacob back to the promised land. And in Genesis 31, 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Chapter 31, verse 13, God appears to Jacob and says, I am the Lord, the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Go back and have a family reunion with your brother Esau. It's the family reunion he wanted to have. And so God told Jacob to return to that promised land, and Jacob and Laban entered into an uneasy truth. You go to your country, I'll stay in mine. And they even put a boundary marker up between the two of them. 
But as you know, there's just one problem. Not only was there trouble behind with Laban, there is trouble ahead with his brother Esau. He had to run away from Laban only to run into his brother Esau. He couldn't go back. He couldn't go forward. We would say out of the frying pan into the fire. Clearly, there were plenty of reasons for worry and fear as Jacob crossed the border into the promised land. Look at the alarming word that Jacob's messengers give him in Genesis 32, verse 6. Genesis 32, verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. There's a German proverb that says, Fear makes the wolf look bigger than he really is. But in Esau's case, the wolf really was big. What follows in Genesis 32 can only be described as controlled panic. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Here, 20 years later, he has to face this problem of Esau, and he is full of the spirit of fear. Fear has been called the sand in the machinery of life. It complicates. You can imagine Jacob pacing back and forth, wondering, what is Esau going to do with me? It also aggravates We see him scrambling here in verses 7 and 8, pathetically dividing his wife and his 11 children at this time. But sand in the machinery of life can also bring it to a halt. And at the end of the day, in Genesis 32, 22, we see that Jacob is left all by himself, believing that tomorrow is the day of crisis. It is here that God meets him. Genesis 32, verses 22 through 24. That same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. It is here that he meets God And what we learn right off the bat, our first principle this morning is that you have to meet God personally to be converted. You have to meet God personally to be converted. Jacob was separated from his wives, from his children, even from his goods and possessions. All of those things that you could identify with, all of those things that keep us busy, that keep us in that hubbub, that keep us in that whirlwind. Well, now Jacob is alone. And God meets Jacob alone, alone with his life story, alone with his regrets, alone pondering the future for sure. And when it seems that you are alone at the end of your resources, when you are in a place with no one else there, 
Let me remind you, friends, it is there that God wants to meet us one-on-one. The gospel of Jesus Christ is intensely personal, right? The gospel says you are an individual and you must stand alone. You are born alone. We must die one by one. And at the bar of God's judgment, we will not be standing there with a crowd. Every man will be judged individually. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Everyone will stand before this God. This is a God that we read about from Andrew in Revelation 4, that there is no boasting before this God. Think of that Revelation 4 scene where they are all bowing down and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You created for your power and for your glory. And so we see, unlike the fear of man, the fear of God is actually very healthy. It is a good thing to be afraid of certain things. More than ever, it is important to have the fear of God. If you are here this morning as an unbeliever and you're trying to make sense of what does it mean to be a Christian, please understand that Christianity is not primarily a set of morals to follow. Christianity is not a worldview that you have about politics, uh, about finances. It is not a worldview that you have about how to educate your children. It is about a personal encounter with God. God is a person. He is real, and our desire for you this morning is that you would know Jesus Christ personally as your personal Savior. Is God real to you? Have you met God personally? When Jacob was left alone, principle number two, God took the initiative to meet him. When Jacob was alone, God took the initiative to meet him Notice that it was not Jacob's idea to wrestle with God. What happened that night was not the result of Jacob's action. It was God who came to Jacob. It was not Jacob who decided to spend the whole night wrestling in prayer. I love that phrase. There's been movies based upon it. But saying that Jacob wrestled all night in prayer is not based upon this text. Jacob was tired was looking for a stone to put his rock on, and God was the aggressor. God jumped Jacob. God laid hold of him. Look with me here at verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Emotionally distressed, all alone, and all of a sudden an unidentified assailant picks Jacob up, throws him down, and they begin to wrestle. This is not the WWF wrestling that I grew up in with Randy, the Macho Man Savage, the Ultimate Warrior, Hulk Hogan, or the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Woo! (laughs) This is not that choreographed stuff, okay? In the Hebrew, what it really means is they were kicking up the dust. This is Jacob in the hands of throw-to-throw, hand-to-hand combat with a man that he does not know who he is. But he does know this man is stronger than him. Now let me ask you a question. In all of your teaching that you've gotten, and all of your expectations about how God operates, 
How do you expect God to respond to a man who is filled with fear at the end of his rope? What does God do to a man like that? He clobbers him, knocks him down, he assaults him, and he cripples him for the rest of his life. Is that what you would expect? Not what I would expect. So you have to ask the question, why? Why? Well, in this wrestling match, God was showing Jacob that the one he needed to fear the most was not Esau. He had wrestled with Esau in his mother's womb. He wrestled the birthright out of his hand. He wrestled the blessing from his father. And you can imagine that Jacob, as he's returning to this family reunion, believes that Esau, his entire life, has been that one person, that one problem between him and the life he always wanted. And Jacob wrestled with this assailant all night, the Bible says. Does that not give you a picture of how strong your self-will is? Does that not give you a picture of how hard the flesh dies in Romans chapter 7? But the minute that Jacob is touched, touched, he realizes what his real problem is. He realizes that his real problem is not what he thought. You know, the gospel reveals to us that the problems that we give so much time and attention to are not the real and vital problems or ultimately the most important problems. That is why, a little, little rabbit trail here, we don't want to read the Bible just moralistically. As if you're to read the Bible, put yourself in his shoes and say, you know what, the Bible is about me and I have an anger problem or I have a financial problem. And I'm going to read this self-help book to tell me how to get my finances under control. You want to know why that's wrong? Because Jacob and you and I aren't often aware of what our deepest, most urgent, most vital problem is. We think... If only I could solve that problem of Esau in my life, all would be fine. If only I had wealth, if only I had education, if only I wasn't in this relationship. You know what I need? A new environment, a, a, a new start, a new opportunity. Well, you know what? God revealed to Jacob that night that what he wasn't considering was the vital problem. The real problem was not Esau. The real problem beneath all of our problems is our relationship with God. The problem beneath all of your problems is, God says, you've been wrestling with me your whole life. You've wanted to be Lord. You've wanted to be your own Savior. You wanted to have it your way. And we see Jacob begins to realize that God is the most important person in his life. When he stops wrestling to get God away, and he begins to start wrestling to not let God go. Look with me at verses 25 and 26. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was point out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, this is God speaking, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless 
you bless me. Think about that change. Can you imagine being in the dark, weary, looking for a rock to put your head on, and then somebody jumps you? You start wrestling to get them away from you, off of you, to survive. Then his hip gets touched, incinerated, excruciating pain, and now he clings to him. What accounts for wrestling to keep something away to wrestling now to don't leave? Has God this morning brought you into a wrestling match with him and you've been trying to keep him away so you can hold on to all those things that you think are the most important in life? Or have you come to a point where you realize that God is the only person you have to hold on to and you let everything else go? What would you say? Have you stopped playing religion this morning? Religion means you cry out to God in times of trouble and in times of difficulty. And up until this point, Maybe you're a church person just like Jacob. Up until this point in Jacob's life, he believed in God. We hear testimonies as an elder board often. I've always believed in God. We say, great, and we keep pushing, right? I, I, I pray to God. Even that in this passage isn't enough. Jacob's prayed to God. Jacob said, God, if you do your part, I'll do mine. Read through Genesis, you'll see that. So he's believed, he's prayed in God. But the vital question is to really be converted to really understand what is true conversion, are you clinging to God? Have you gone from fighting God off to holding on to Him? Principle three, conversion makes you recognize this is the most important thing in your life. Now, obviously, this man had the power to defeat Jacob. A, a mere touch of the finger blew his hip out of socket. Notice the confrontation in verse 27. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. What is happening here? This is God asking a question. Those of you who have been reading the Bible for a long time, does God ever ask a question to learn something? Where are you, Adam and Eve? What is your name? He knows them all by name. He doesn't forget their name. The very hairs on their head are numbered. What is he doing? He knew the answer. He is forcing Jacob to own up to who he truly is. And it's in his name. I am Jacob. I'm a deceiver. That's my identity. Jacob means deceiver. I'm a liar. Jacob admits failure by saying his name. You know, God makes all of us confess honestly what really plagues us. As Chris and Andrew have talked about already, as if this was planned, and it wasn't, but you can pretend to be somebody in church. You can pretend to be somebody in the workplace. Maybe you can put even a mask on at home. Sometimes deceiving your relatives. But God, he knows the inner secrets of the heart. 
In fact, God knows you better than you know yourself. Hebrews 4.13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you're here as an unbeliever, I can ask you this question with confidence. Have you considered the folly of trying to be someone other than you really are before this God? It is foolish to try to hide with fig leaves before this God by whom all are naked and exposed and to whom we must give an account. He knows you too well. So this morning, if you want to enter into a relationship with God, it will involve total surrender and an honest confession of who you are. We call that New Testament repentance. A turning away from your self-confidence, a turning away from where your identity is, and to put your faith in Jesus the crucified. And Jesus can give you a new identity. Jesus can give you a new identity. Jesus can change your name just like he did Jacob in verse 28. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Jacob goes from being a trickster, a shyster, Jacob, to Israel, the one who struggles with God and wins. All of that to say, my friends, we win with God by losing. Jacob did not manhandle the angel of the Lord. All he could do was, was just cling to him in desperation. And Edmund Clowney puts it like this, Faith wins when it knows all is lost and clings to God alone. Faith wins when it knows all is lost and clings to God alone alone. Our greatest defeats can be our greatest victories. Principle number four, cling to God in your weakness. Cling to God in your weakness. We are all like Jacob. You know what? <laughs> we don't cling to the Lord with all of our strength until we have to. It's just the nature of it. As long as there is an ounce of self-dependence, we will trust in ourselves. And so if you're here thinking, man, that nerve of that pastor to tell me I am a terrible sinner. Does he not know I'm a pretty good person? Well, you know what? God may have to let you go through some serious problems. We call it hitting bottom to let you see your desperate need. And it is not until God cripples us and we see who we really are that we begin to cling to him and cry out, bless me. When Jacob is powerless, Jacob prevailed. When Jacob is powerless, he prevailed. Did you catch that in Jacob's name change? You shall be called Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Wait a minute. God touched him, incinerated his hip, and Jacob prevailed? That has bothered me all week. I have talked to every person I have met and just asked, how could Jacob be considered the winner here? How? How? How could God not beat any of us? Surely it wasn't because 
Jacob was so strong that he prevailed. It was because God became weak. Now we begin to see who this mysterious wrestler is. Who became weak in order to win? Jesus was that mysterious wrestler. I believe this was a Christophany. This is Christ in the Old Testament, giving us a picture of what salvation is because Christ won by losing. Jesus became the victor because he became the victim. You understand that? Jesus was slain on the cross of Calvary for all the accumulated sins coming down from the centuries. Just think about that. And God poured out his wrath upon his son so that we could see God's face. This pre-incarnate Christ says, let me go because the day has broken. Because we know that later, no one can look upon God's face and live. This was not because he wanted to get away from Jacob. This was actually for Jacob's protection. You can't see me and live. Jacob just got a little bit. Just the finger touch. Christ absorbed all of the wrath. All you need to do to see the glory of God in the face is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. By our sin, we made God our enemy. But in Christ, we are restored to him and able to see his face forever and ever. Notice here at the end that God leaves Jacob with a limp the rest of his life. An unmistakable mark that Jacob had met God personally and alone, lived and was forever changed. You know, limps don't stop in Genesis 32. Limps are still happening in 2019. All believers have a limp. Don't be ashamed of your limp. Brothers, don't be ashamed of your limp. Sisters, don't be ashamed of your limp. We all have to wrestle with God alone, acknowledge our weakness, and meet him at his weakness in Jesus Christ. But if you don't, the other option is to resist God's breaking process and to become bitter. You either have a sure limp or a sour lip. You can either say, oh, that limp, that's just a little bit of arthritis. Or you can share your victory of how God's breaking you transformed your life and teach others. Look at 32. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Friends, we wouldn't have that if Jacob wasn't transparent and honest about his limp. The faith family of Israel has a practice because as a community, one person was willing to say, God gave me this limp. This is not from arthritis. This is not from riding in a truck too long. This is not from working the plow. This is what God did to me. 
and yet we want to put on that pretend face. Or you can share with a congregation where God has broken you to teach others that God is all-sufficient. You can either say, look what God has done, or you can say, look what you've done. One's a sure limp, one is a sour lip. You can say, let me go. Go. Or you can say, don't let me go. Don't be ashamed of your limp. The sour lip is a poor condition to be in. But the sure limp is a conviction that you've met and been with the one personally. Now let's see what happens as we get ready for our communion time. I think this is a great picture of communion. Jacob looked. He saw Esau coming with his army. 400 men expecting anger, expecting murderous intent, and I want you to see Genesis 33, 4 to see how the story ends. But Esau ran to meet him, embraced him, fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. If you are picking up the prodigal son in that story, I think that's what Christ is basing the prodigal son off of. The father runs. Friends, Jacob, his whole life has been a conniver, a deceiver, playing people. And he sent wave after wave of gift to Esau. Wave after wave. And every servant was supposed to say this, 32.4, Thus shall you say to my Lord. Who does Jacob call his Lord? Not God, Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob, I'll serve you. I have sojourned with labor and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent them to my Lord in order that I may find favor, grace, standing, peace in your sight. That's what he does at the beginning. At the end of the story, Esau doesn't even get to receive a gift. He runs to Jacob. Friends, it's a picture of grace. He didn't buy him off. He didn't appease him. God provided again. God provided again. Friends, do you have anything to fear? Are you fearing what you shouldn't? A mere rustling of the leaves, as it were? Or are you not fearing what you should? As the saying goes, fear knocked on the door. Faith answered. No one was there. This communion table is to remind you that Jacob learned in this place of Penuel that if God be for us, who can be against us? If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? Trust in Christ and you need not fear. Ben, if you'd come forward, we'll take communion together.